Hello again. Today we're talking with Heather Darcy. She's the author of Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister. She got her bachelor's degree in German language and literature, and she's currently working on her master's in early modern history. But another cool thing is that she has her Juris Doctorate, and as you'll see, her legal and German history knowledge collide and give us a very interesting perspective for Anna of Cleves. As you know, I love interviewing people who are passionate about their topic. That can be academics, students, scholars, amateurs, podcasters, authors, and so many more. And you might have noticed that not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie, I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. Now let's delve even more into some Tudor history, hey? Today I'm talking with Heather Darcy, and she is the author of a book about Anne of Cleves. I am so happy to have Heather on here. She will enlighten us, and I am sure we will all learn something about this mysterious figure in history. So thank you for being here, Heather. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm very happy to be here and talk to you today. I was actually just researching for my second book, which is anticipated to come out next year. It's going to be Children of the House of Cleves and will be kind of more of a social cultural history about Anna's family and her brother-in-law over in Germany. The first book that you mentioned is kind of more of a political legal history and I think it explains a lot better why Anna's marriage ended and it's not because Henry found her unattractive. (laughs) So how did you get interested in this topic? It seems like something so different. I became interested because I was just tired of reading about how she was just this ugly woman who Henry couldn't stand being married to. And so he decided to ditch her in favor of a much younger model that is Catherine Howard. And it didn't make much sense to me. And also I realized that Anna was about 24 when she moved to England. So she certainly wasn't a kid. I mean, she was a fully fledged adult, even by today's standards. And so I figured that there was a lot more to her story and a lot more that made her an attractive bride than what the English history books had been saying. Also, I have a Bachelor of Arts in German Languages and Literatures. And so I figured if anybody could dive in and find out more about Anna I would at least be marginally qualified. Um, So I went ahead in fall of 2014 or 15, and I actually wrote a letter to the mayor of Cleves, the city of Cleves, asking for help. And they forwarded my letter on to some archivists in and around uh, Nordrhein-Westfalen, which I think is North Rhine-Westphalia in English. And it kind of took off from there, and I was able to request a bunch of documents from them that they scanned and sent to me. And from there, it just opened up my eyes as to what really happened to Anna and why Henry was, for political reasons, was unable to stay married to her. Mm -hmm. Well, when we look at her history, we tend to read sort of the British version, right? That seems to be what's common. Absolutely. And also the British version was compiled in late June, early July of 1540, specifically so that Anna and Henry could have an annulment. So the tales that have come down to us over the past 450 years or so 
were ones about how Henry thought she was unattractive, how he was unable to consummate her marriage, how she might have been pre-contracted to someone else. And all of those were grounds for divorce that show up in depositions and other documents created specifically so that Henry could have that annulment. It didn't really show us the contemporary version of what had happened with Anna. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we gave a little bit of background, but let's explain who she is for those who are actually lost right now, maybe. Oh, sure. Thanks. So Henry VIII of England, he was king of England from 1509 to 1547, and he famously had six wives. There's that rhyme of divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Anna is the second divorced, and his queens were Catherine of Aragon, who's the mother of Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary. Then there was Anne Boleyn for a few years. She's the mother of Elizabeth I. She was beheaded. Then there was Jane Seymour, who was the mother of Edward VI. And Jane Seymour sadly died due to purple fever after Edward was born. And then we come to Anna. And I choose to call her Anna because that was her German name at birth. Of course, when she moved to England, she was referred to in English circles and at English court as Anne. She did sign her letters home to her family as Anna, the daughter of Cleves. So she did use her German name when she wrote to her German family. Perfect. That's puts it into history very well. Very succinct, actually, for such a complicated history. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So let's start then at the beginning. So Anna comes from Cleves. And where is that? It is kind of smack in the western middle of modern-day Germany, and main capital areas are across the river from the Netherlands. There were two capitals at the time because her father, Johann III, the Duke of Cleves, and Mark, when he married her mother Maria, the Duchess of Juliers or Julich and Berg, the capital of Julichberg was in Dusseldorf, and then the capital of Cleves was in the city of Cleves. And later on, Dusseldorf became the overall capital. And I believe that Julichberg was a bit more powerful than Cleves Mark and was a little bit larger as well. Um, but this was a very powerful region, smack in the middle of the Holy Roman Empire as well. And what were the things that led Henry to marry her? What was going on at the time that gave him that opportunity? Things that made a bride from Cleves look attractive were money that came into play later on. And I know that her brother Wilhelm was considered to be poor, but I would be happy to come back and explain some of that in the dowry system in German culture at the time. Also, that geographic positioning of it being right in the middle of the Holy Roman Empire and not very far from France. So if Henry were to be attacked potentially by the emperor or by France, he would have um, the United Duchies, which is another term for Cleves, Mark, and Julichberg, their access to their armies so that they could come in and help him and vice versa. What happened then? So how did she get to England to meet her future husband? Well, Henry liked the portraits that he saw. You might have seen the portrait on my book cover. It's possible that he saw that portrait first because there is some reference to portraits of Anna and Amalia being sent to England before Henry famously sent Hans Holbein to paint Anna. And that portrait, of course, is now in the Louvre. But the portrait on the cover is one that he might have seen up front. And she's described later on at their first official meeting, which was in January of 1540, as wearing a hat with pearls embroidered on it. And so I'm wondering if the hat that we see in the portrait on the cover is the very same hat that she was wearing when she first formally met Henry. But after some negotiations, it was determined that having an alliance with the Duke of Cleves would be good for Henry. 
he was still kind of vacillating back and forth between being more, I suppose you could say Lutheran or Protestant and more Catholic. He did remain more firmly in the Catholic camp in 1539, and that displeased Anna's brother-in-law, the elector of Saxony, and that's really who Henry was trying to seek an alliance with. We have to keep in mind that in this period of history, we have the Holy Roman Empire, France, and England as some fairly serious powers. England still isn't really that strong until, of course, we have Elizabeth I and the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. But England was up and coming. Within the Holy Roman Empire, we had the electorate of Saxony, which was very, very powerful. So Anna's older sister, Zibilla, was married to the elector of Saxony. The elector of Saxony had created something called the Schmalkaldic or Protestant League, and Henry wanted to be in that. So essentially, Henry made the deal in order to get closer and to have more power. Was it to be in an alliance? It seems to me like it was almost a balancing act with the Holy Roman Emperor. So at the time, you can look at the Reformation. Obviously, there are undeniably strong religious overtones. Within the Holy Roman Empire, the other thing one has to keep in mind is that if you are pro-Catholic, you are pro-emperor. If you are anti-Catholic, you are anti-emperor. By Henry having somewhat of a cordial relationship with the elector of Saxony and with the king of Denmark, who was also a Protestant, that would be somewhat of a balance of power with the Holy Roman Emperor and also possibly with France. Were there any interesting legalities coming along in here? Any legal contracts? Like, how did that work back then? From a purely functional standpoint, for example, if we look at Anna's marriage contract, it was written in both Latin and German, presumably so that she'd be able to read it, and she herself signed it in her own hand as a born duchess of Ulrich-Kliesberg. Being a born duchess was its own legal distinction within the Holy Roman Empire. And then it was imperially notarized. So there was an imperial notary that would sign and, um, I suppose, swear to the document. And I guess these documents were signed prior to her leaving, or were they signed once she got there? Prior to. So technically, she married Henry, or at least signed the contracts in September to October of 1539. It wasn't like a normal marriage, right? Or was this how it was done back then? This was how it was done back then, just to ensure that nothing strange happened, I suppose you could say. So they signed the marriage documents beforehand, and then they made provisions for sorting out how to get Anna from Germany to England. And so they decided upon an overland route and they had to secure passports from the Holy Roman Emperor and also have the King of France agree to let Anna pass through their territories. So there was quite a bit of organization that went into orchestrating not only the official marriage documents, but also transporting Anna from Germany to England. And considering Henry was trying to get closer to the Holy Roman Empire or trying to balance that out, was there anything happening with them? Did they see a problem with the marriage? Did they completely support it? Did they have reservations? How did that work? I don't know if that's a question. <laughs> no, that is an awesome question. You may not know this, but you just hit at the core of my argument. So I'm trying to think of the best way to organize the answer. So I'm going to answer in two parts. So first, we have to look at the Emperor Charles V's relationship with Henry and also his relationship with Anna's brother, Wilhelm. Henry and Charles V had restored their cordial relationship with each other. They had a falling out over the annulment that Henry enacted from Catherine of Aragon, who, of course, was Charles V's aunt. So that was not something that Charles V could agree with, and he could not be supportive of Henry or have an amicable relationship with Henry 
diplomatically speaking, while his aunt Catherine was still alive. After Catherine passed away, things were still a bit tenuous between Henry and the emperor, but they were able to come to some amount of agreement or understanding and be on good terms, or at least not bellicose terms with each other. So in early 1539, the emperor lost his beloved wife in May of 1539, and he never formally or fully came out of mourning for that. He actually wore black for the rest of his life, and he never remarried. After she passed away, he locked himself up in a monastery for about two months, completely shut away from the world, two or three months. And by the time he came back out, he found out that negotiations between Henry and Wilhelm, Anna's younger brother, who's about 22 or 23 years old at the time of these negotiations, were very, very far gone. And the emperor was not happy at all with Wilhelm. There's this piece of property called Gelders, which had five different rivers in it and was a very wealthy territory. Charles V had several different legal claims, some through inheritance and some through contracts where basically he or one of his forebears, like Mary of Burgundy, who was his grandmother, his paternal grandmother, had lent money to the Duke of Gelders. And because the Duke of Gelders and successive Dukes of Gelders defaulted on those loans, that gave Charles V's or the, the Habsburg family or a right to the title for the Duchy of Gelders. In 1538, when the Duke of Gelders was dying, he said, hey, Wilhelm, you're a young man and you're my distant relative. I'm going to put you in charge of the duchy. And so Wilhelm, being a young hothead, said, okay, even though Anna and Wilhelm's dad, Johann III, was against it. But so Wilhelm became the Duke of Gelders in the summer of 1538. Charles V did not like this because he was supposed to inherit it. So Charles V has a problem with Wilhelm. And he's trying to be friendly to Henry. So Charles V allowed the marriage to go through. He granted the passports that Anna needed and her train needed to get from Germany to England. In the meantime, he is trying to negotiate with Wilhelm to get the territory of Gelders back from him. Okay, so there seems to be a bit of a volcano situation happening on that end. Absolutely. If Anna was sort of a little bit in the middle of this, I guess, familial controversy, did she seem to also want to go through with this? Or did she feel ambivalence, you think? To go through with the marriage or go through with the annulment? Sorry, the marriage. She very much enjoyed lording it over both her brother and her older sister's head that she was now a queen of her own country rather than being but a duke or an electress. So I think that, again, we have to keep in mind what our personalities were like when we were in our early 20s. But I think she was very excited to become Queen of England. And I'm not aware of her being against the idea. Oh, okay. After she signed the documents, she then went over to England, as you mentioned. Yes. What happened once she was there? That is where things differ. So we have the story, which comes to us from the dissertations and other things created for the annulment proceedings that were made in June or July of 1540 for the English account. The German account is completely different, and it was written down a couple days after they met. The German account talks about how well Henry and Anna got along and that Henry was very pleased with her, that he spent the entire evening with her, stayed the night at a property not far from her in Rochester, which is, of course, where they had their first surprise meeting, dined with her the next morning, and then they rode off for their formal meeting later on that day. So they got along quite well. All of the English records, if you actually look at them during the time period that she was queen, there's no mention that I've found, at least, 
that says anything about their marriage not going well or him being displeased with her anywhere. Where you see most of that is, again, when the documents were created for the annulment proceedings. So how long was it from the moment that she arrived in England uh, with Henry and when they asked for an annulment? How much time passed? About six months. Oh, so it was a very short period of time. Yes. And he sent her away to a palace of Richmond, which he wound up being given as part of the annulment settlement right before their birthday. So Henry and Anna actually shared a birthday. They were both born June 28th, and he was exactly twice her age when they were married. So she was 24 and he was 48. But he sent her away to Richmond a few days before their birthday, presumably so she could avoid the sweating sickness. But actually, it was to try and put together things for the annulment. And in the background, what you have simmering is a war between the emperor and Anna's brother, Wilhelm. And that's what Henry was trying to avoid, was war against the Holy Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. So when Henry decided to annul the marriage, what happened then? Like, what were some of the things that happened? He was very, very generous to her in the amount of property and money that he gave to her, partially because she did acquiesce to what he wanted. I think that some of the reason why he did that was he may have been able to recall what Catherine of Aragon's life was like after Henry's older brother Arthur died and left Catherine a widow and basically abandoned in a foreign country. I think also he recognized that Anna. It wasn't her fault. She was just somewhat a victim of circumstance, unfortunately. And additionally, I think he genuinely cared about her and liked her. He just couldn't be married to her for political reasons. And did Anna ever want to return to Germany or was she happy in England? It went back and forth. During Henry's reign, there was at least one opportunity for her to remarry Henry, but nothing came of that. And under the reign of Edward VI, she was treated very, very poorly. I have a letter from. 1552, where she's writing to her brother Wilhelm and asking him to help her because Edward's council wasn't giving her the money that was due her. And she said something along the lines of, England is England and we're strangers here. So she was still, at least under Edward VI, treated very much like an outsider. You mentioned that Henry wanted to avoid the conflict that was happening. Was he able to avoid it to a certain degree, or was he caught up into it? He was very much able to avoid it. By having his marriage with Anna annulled, he did not have to continue supporting her brother Wilhelm against the emperor. And in 1543, so about three years later, things did come to a head, and Wilhelm did wind up going to war against the emperor, and he lost. And then in, I believe it was 1545 or 1546, I'm a little bit fuzzy on this, but there was Henry's last campaign to France where he attacked Boulogne and the emperor was supposed to attack Paris. It wound up that the emperor was able to resolve things with Francis I, but Henry did wind up later on joining with the emperor. Also going back to 1543, at the time that the emperor was preparing to go to war against Anna's brother Wilhelm, there was a lot of pressure from Wilhelm's counselors for Henry to remarry Anna and at the same time, you have the emperor's counselors saying, hey, Henry, will you please formally join against Wilhelm or at least formally say you're not going to support him? And rather than doing that, Henry marries Catherine Parr. So that was his way of quietly making it so that he couldn't marry Anna again and thus become allies with Wilhelm. And also he didn't have to publicly declare that he wasn't willing to support Cleves. Mm -hmm. What happened for the annulment? So you said... So I'm just going back a little bit. Um, in England, they basically wrote a whole document stating how terrible the marriage was or whatnot. 
And in Germany, it wasn't the same case. So how did it work when you wanted to annul a marriage or what happened in this case? There was a religious convocation. Initially, Thomas Cromwell, who had been thrown in the tower, was told to sign an attestation, which gives us the basis for most of Henry and Anna's relationship and just saying effectively that Henry wasn't attracted to her, so he wasn't able to consummate the marriage. So that rendered the marriage annullable, I guess you could say. Also that Henry and his princely heart knew that Anna was someone else's husband. There had been a pre-contract between Anna and the Duke of Lorraine's son, Francis of Lorraine, but that had been extinguished in 1535. But no formal document, I believe, had been presented to Henry's liking. And then there was a third reason, basically, that even though he consented outwardly, he did not consent inwardly to the marriage. And so during this convocation, several depositions were taken. I think there's something like 16 depositions were taken just saying about how Anna was not attractive to Henry. Henry himself never said that he thought Anna was ugly. He just said that he was unable to be sexually attracted to her, basically, for several different reasons, and that he was concerned that she was someone else's wife, which she wasn't. But he was concerned about that and just set out all these different reasons for the annulment. And then there's really only one or two people who flat out called her ugly. But again, that's to support this idea that Henry couldn't consummate the marriage with Anna because he wasn't attracted to her. So looking at the English records and then looking at the German records, besides what you've mentioned, was there anything else that was very striking to you? I think just looking at the political situation, because I'd never really seen that fully investigated in any book about Anna. The Gelder's War, which is the war I was talking about in 1543 between Wilhelm and the Holy Roman Emperor, that's never really looked at as a serious issue, nor was any of Wilhelm's political intrigues that he was engaging in behind Henry VIII's back. And those, I fully believe, are what led to the annulment. There's never going to be a, the smoking gun document where someone has written down, oh, Henry needs his marriage and all because he doesn't want a war with the emperor. But if you look at what's happening in all these different territories, it becomes, I believe, very clear to see the direction that all this is going. The records usually give you an idea that Henry might have fallen in love or been attracted to somebody else. And that's why he pushed Anna aside. But it seems as though that might not be the case. We have to keep in mind that Catherine Howard was very young. She was anywhere between 15 and 19 years old when she married Henry. She married him very rapidly after the annulment was declared in England and presumably before any news could really get back to either the Holy Roman Emperor or Anna's brother Wilhelm. And by marrying Catherine Howard, he made it demonstrably more difficult for Wilhelm or the Emperor to come back and say, hey, no, 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 Henry, this convocation is wrong. You need to still be married to Anna. Additionally, when we're looking at Catherine Howard, her uncle was the Duke of Norfolk, who was a very, very powerful person at the time. And Catherine herself was an orphan. And so she did not really have anyone genuinely looking out for her best interests. So by marrying Catherine, who, yes, was younger and maybe was more attractive, probably did indeed make Henry feel more robust. Because here you have a 49-year-old man who's now married to a 15 to 19-year-old girl feel more attractive, feel better about himself. But in reality, Catherine just made the perfect victim. She made the perfect option for Henry for someone to marry quickly to avoid any further legal complications with his annulment from Anna. It seems as though it's never discussed all of these layers, if you will, when we read about Henry on a surface level or learn about him in a history class. It seems as though 
all of the little things that happened for him to either behead his wife or get married again or annul or whatnot. It's just, it's such a different way to look at it. I've been looking a little bit more into Henry's first couple of wives and Henry was always determined to get what he wanted. And I don't think anyone would disagree with that. I also think that Henry always had a reason for doing what he chose to do. And I don't think it's always as surface level as we're seeing it. So I am working on some research into his first two wives that will probably eventually wind up becoming a book, but there's nothing planned just yet. But I think that Henry had more of a reason for doing what he did than meets the eye. And I think that's generally true about him. Whether or not he was the active thinker behind these, I don't know, or if it was just his counsel. But I do think that he was a little bit more politically savvy than he's typically given credit for. Mm -hmm. And looking at letters or things from the native country of the person he married. So for example, I guess Catherine of Aragon would have been in Spain. So can we look at some of those documents? Is that something that you're looking into? I just started looking at those. I'm not looking at them too heavily. I'm more looking at the uh, family dynamics of Catherine's family. Henry himself is really an interesting figurehead to study. There's just so many layers. <laughs> yes. You said you were really uh, interested in how Anna was misrepresented, or you thought maybe she was misrepresented. How has it changed your perspective by learning what you've learned? It just makes more sense to me. That's really all I can say about it. I think that by bringing to light what was happening on the continent and how everything was so interconnected and also what her brother was up to, it just seems to have so much more meaning and makes so much more sense than Henry having spent all this money to ship Anna from Germany to England to marry her and then to leave her and agree to support her in his own country rather than sending her back home. We have to keep in mind, too, that at the point when the annulment took effect, Anna was basically a political refugee because it would have been incredibly dangerous for her to cross through the emperor's lands, also potentially France's lands. But at that point, Wilhelm had an alliance with the king of France. So the bigger issue was crossing through imperial territory because she could have been captured. We don't know. But she had nowhere to go and she had no way of getting home after the annulment. Maybe some shred of truth is in the statements that Henry was saying she's like a sister, somebody who he does love, just not in that way. Possibly. And he could have loved her in that way, but it didn't matter because he couldn't be married to her. Very interesting. I just want to briefly address, because I usually get asked this, they never had a child together. I know that that's a popular rumor, but they never did have a child together. And that stems from in late 1541, I think it was August of 1541, Henry visited Anna and he was still very actively married to Catherine Howard. And this was before Catherine's fall from grace. And then in early 1542, Anna had taken ill. She suffered from different illnesses throughout her time in England. And one of her ladies brought to Anna, the lady's baby that she had just had. And so some rumor mongers saw Anna holding this baby and they knew that she had taken to her sick bed. So they just made up this rumor that was spread about England for a very little bit that Anna had had a child with Henry VIII, which is absolutely not true. And also, if you really think about it, it would have been politically dangerous for her, or if not politically dangerous, then it would have made her unable to marry anyone else because who would want to marry a woman of that high stature that had the king's bastard? Yeah, absolutely. So Anna never remarried or had a family of her own? No, she never could. There were a couple different issues with that. Of course, she was trapped a little bit 
or depending on the time, felt trapped. At other times, she was happily living in England. Ultimately, there wasn't anyone of her status available for her to marry. So there was some talk at some point early in the reign of Edward VI of Anna possibly marrying his uncle Thomas Seymour. That never really came to anything, though. But there wasn't really a good peer of the English realm for her to marry. And then, of course, she couldn't go home to Germany. And Wilhelm wasn't willing to put up another dowry for her. So that's a little bit sad, actually, that she was outcasted and living in a country where she was a little bit of an alien. Yeah. And her younger sister, Amalia, also was unable to marry as well. So neither Anna nor Amalia were meaningfully married or had children. So Amalia wound up spending the rest of her life living with their brother, Wilhelm, and kind of helping to take care of his children. But a lot of that is the direct fallout from the Reformation. Usually a second or third daughter of a noble person in Germany at the time would have gone to a convent. But of course, during the Reformation, you see something very similar in Germany that you do in England with the destruction of the monasteries. So there weren't really any convents to where Amalia could go, the littlest sister. And she herself had become Lutheran, so there's no way she would have gone, even if Wilhelm tried to make her. Additionally, with the strict dowry system that they had in Germany, it's very likely that there was just no money available for a dowry for Amalia. So typically, noble women would marry a step down, whereas noble men would marry a step up. So Anna and her sister Zabilla were very unique in that Zabilla was able to marry a step above her station, as was Anna. But that's also why her father, Johann III, didn't have enough money to pay Duke Antoine of Lorraine, who was Francis' father, to enforce that contract because that was Anna marrying laterally and her father spent all that money so that Zabilla could marry the elector of Saxony. And that is why the engagement to or the pre-contract to Francis of Lorraine was ended in 1535 because Anna's dad just never finished paying the money. And also why Wilhelm did not have the money available to provide a sufficient dowry for Anna to marry a king because it was just not completely outrageous, but certainly borderline unfathomable that Anna would have married a king of a country. So they hadn't put aside enough of a dowry for it? Was there issues with that? That's why there's this misconception that Wilhelm was poor in English history. He wasn't poor. There were a couple things going on. First, there wasn't enough money for the typical dowry put aside for Anna. She probably had enough money put aside for her to marry a step down, but certainly not to a king of an entire country. Additionally, Wilhelm was preparing for war with the emperor, so he didn't have the funds available. Wilhelm himself later on became known as Wilhelm the Rich. So he would have had money had it not been for, as you say, her marrying you know, the king of a country or the war uh, funds that had to be put aside. Correct. And it wouldn't have surprised me if Anna were able to marry a step down, shall we say, so marry more of a count. Her, during the marriage negotiations for Amalia, she was proposed as a bride to a couple different counts. Again, that's her marrying a step down. It's just none of those ever came to fruition. So it seems as though the culture in Germany at the time, it was very important for them to marry somebody of the station. Was it similar in England? That I'm not entirely certain of because I'm more of a German historian than an English historian. So I'm not entirely firm on the dowry structure in England. Okay. So was there anything interesting about the dowry system that you found when you were researching it? Yeah, just basically that the women always married down, almost, almost always married down. And Anna and her sister being such unique exceptions with both of them marrying up 
it was just a, to me, it was a bit of a fluke of history. And her mother, Maria, of course, married laterally because she was a born duchess. But when you're a born duchess and you're the only heir, which was the situation with Anna's mother, Maria, then the husband inherits the property or has control of the property by right of his marriage to the wife. So you would see that sometimes, too, where a woman would marry laterally because she was the only heir and then her husband gained access to the territory. You also saw this with Mary of Burgundy, Charles V's paternal grandmother, when she married Maximilian I. So you studied this time period quite a bit um, with the legalities and how marriage and annulments and whatnot worked. Did you find that things were different prior to everything that happened with Anna? Have you looked at you know the changes during the Reformation or after the Reformation in Germany? Most of my research into marriage structures or marriage negotiations, I suppose you could say, during the Reformation have been more about interconfessional marriages. So I haven't really looked at any annulments other than Anna's. So how did uh, that work? Was there differences when the Reformation came up? It was just interesting to see the success of the marriage. I mean, if we look at Anna's nephew, Johann Wilhelm, who became Duke of Cleves in 1592, or right around there when Anna's brother Wilhelm passed away, he had an interconfessional marriage with Jacobea von Baden. She was a Jesuit, and Johann Wilhelm was a Catholic, and that led to quite a bit of discord at court between Johann Wilhelm and Jacobea, and she was actually later possibly murdered by Johann Wilhelm's sisters, or at least at the behest of Johann Wilhelm's sisters, because she was not a good influence at court for various other reasons. But like I said, it was an interconfessional marriage, and that certainly didn't help things. Mm -hmm. There seemed to be some struggle with implementing sort of new systems or different ways to do it, possibly. There would have been some issues with what ceremonies to use. Those would differ. I imagine there was marital strife between husbands and wives if they wound up being of different religious persuasions, or if during the Reformation, if one spouse switched there's also the curious example of Philip von Hesse, who was a good friend and associate of the Elector of Saxony on his brother-in-law, and he used Martin Luther's teachings to give him the ability to have a bigamous marriage because he frankly didn't really like his lawful wife, and I believe she was a Catholic at the time. So you just see all sorts of weird little things happening with these interconfessional marriages. Mm -hmm. And did they change the legalities of it, or it was very much intertwined with the church at the time. I suppose it depends on who you ask, because of course, if you have a Catholic person marrying someone and it's been ratified, I suppose you could say, by the Catholic church under canon law, then it's a perfectly valid marriage. However, if you can find something in Martin Luther's teachings that can justify you leaving your spouse, which was I'm under the impression, though I can't verify this right now, which I, was something that could have happened with husbands wanting to leave their wives, or in the case of Philip von Hesse, having a bigamous marriage because he didn't like his wife, they would do that too. So it was kind of like this weird no man's land. And the other thing that you see happening is the advent of Hausvater or Hausfather literature coming out in the 1570s because you have all these clerics and religious persons who are cast out of their religious houses that suddenly have to get married and become husbands and they have no idea how to be husbands. And there's something similar happening with former nuns and things along those lines that they're suddenly having to get married, but they don't know what it's like to be a wife or to not be in charge. Because of course, if you're a nun, 
you don't really have men around to be in charge of things, so you're used to managing them and being in charge yourself. I think that a good example of that would be Katharina von Boa, who married Martin Luther, and she very successfully ran farms and, and several things with their properties. And she did occasionally get on Luther's nerves, but she is a good example of someone who was a nun who had learned these practical skills and then brought them into her marriage, maybe had some discord, which might be understandable if you take a bunch of women who are used to being in control and now suddenly they are the property of their husbands. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that would be quite the adjustment. And I wanted to ask, so you said a really fun fact in my little questionnaire. Can you share the fun fact if you remember it? So I have three parrots. I meant to have two. Um, and then I rescued a third. They are Mavius, who is a Princess of Wales parakeet. And I originally thought he was a girl, so I named him Maeve. But now his name is Mavius. And he is a very chatty boy. He likes to shout his name at people and show you how pretty he is. And he's very flirty. And then I have Cassia, who is a yellow-sided conure. So she's a green cheek conure mutation. And she says about six words, which she says whether she's happy or angry. So if she's angry, she will mutter at you how she loves you and say baby Casey in a very angry tone. And if she's happy, she will do the same in a very nice tone. And then there's Dikaios, whose name means justice or the law in Greek. And she is an elderly ladybird, and she likes to show the other birds how pretty she is. And she makes kiss noises. And I also take her golfing with me. <laughs> and she loves hanging out with you then. She does, yes. And golfing is probably one of her favorite things. My fiancé and I put her in a clear parrot carry cage, and we securely strap her into the golf cart and make sure she has food and water. And then that's what we do is we go around the golf course, park her in the shade, whistle to her. It's a great time. Great way to be an elderly bird. <laughs> I'm sure that's the talk of the golf course. You know, we've had a few people come up to us and say, is that a bird? And then they usually get a kick out of it. That's really fun. And a question I like asking is something that some people really enjoy. I hope you enjoy it. Um, if you had a time machine. What would be either the place or the people or the event that you would like to either observe or partake in? Either way, doesn't matter. I would want to see the first meeting between Henry and Anna. And why would you want to see this? What would be your, your goal in seeing this? I want to see who's telling the truth. You have the German account, which is wildly different from the English account. I'm inclined to think that there are certain aspects of the German account that are more truthful. But of course, there's probably a little bit of the rose-tinted glasses because they're sending letters back to Anna's mother, who's still alive at this point, and her brother, and saying, oh yeah, everything's great. And then you have the English account, which was, of course, made to facilitate the annulment. So I'm curious to know what the truth would be. Would you want to see further down the line, or was it really that first meeting that's intriguing to you? I'd want to see the first meeting, and then I'd also want to see the first time that Anna goes to court to visit Catherine Howard, because... I think that it's very common to interpret her meeting with Catherine Howard. This was, of course, for New Year's Day, 1541. Anna shows up. She has these two gorgeous horses and purple velvet trappings that she's giving to Henry as a, as a New Year's Day present. She comes in. Catherine Howard is there, and Anna falls to her feet to do something. I think a lot of it's frequently been interpreted that Anna was showing that she respected Catherine as the new queen. My interpretation is that she was 
being overly dramatic to make Catherine feel uncomfortable because of course, of course, Catherine had been a lady in waiting to Anna before the annulment and before Catherine married Henry. And I think that by giving that very, very expensive gift of the horses with the purple velvet trappings, Anna was kind of throwing it in Catherine's face a little bit that Anna in her own right had money and had access to things that Catherine simply didn't have because Later on, Henry gives Catherine a dog or a couple of dogs, and then Catherine passes those over to Anna. So Catherine didn't have anything that she could give Anna. She just gifted a present over to Anna from Henry. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. So Anna definitely had some money of her own. Was it mostly through Henry? Yes. Yes, okay. So she didn't bring family wealth with her, really? Not really, no. And she didn't have access to it. And I don't know that there was a very good way for Wilhelm to send that kind of money over there during this brewing war with the emperor and even afterwards. Because, of course, after he's beaten by the emperor and has to sign a treaty with the emperor, he's now enemies with France. So it was just a mess (laughs) for a while for the United Duchies. (laughs) Yeah. And finally, I guess you mentioned a few times your research. So did you want to talk more about your research? Yeah, so I'm excited about this next book. It's being published through Amberley. It's called Children of the House of Cleves. I think I mentioned this before, but it's more of a social cultural history. So it gives a better idea of what was the German court like, and not just the German court in Cleves, but also the one in Saxony, because of course, that's the court into which Anna's elder sister, Zabilla, married. And that is the heart of the Lutheran Reformation, because Martin Luther, when he posted his 95 theses on the castle chapel door, that was in the electorate of Saxony. So I'm very excited about that. And I am looking forward to going more in depth with the reign of her brother, Wilhelm, who lived for an extraordinarily long time. He was born in 1516 and didn't die until 1592. And he kept up contacts with Edward VI and also with Mary and Elizabeth. And things kind of vacillated back and forth a little bit with Mary and Elizabeth, but he did keep up contacts with them. He was still of political importance to England, or at least his activities were worth knowing about in England during the reigns of all of Henry's children. Mm-hmm. Well, that's very exciting. That sounds really good. I mean, I didn't know Wilhelm had lived that long. That's amazing. Yeah, and her younger sister, so Zabilla, the older sister, died in 1552 or 1553, so just a few short years before Anna herself died. And the little sister, Amalia, lived until, I believe, 1586, so she was alive from 1517 to about 1586, so she also had a very long life. So they have very good genes in that family. Well, at least a couple of them did. Yeah. <laughs> um, and with Wilhelm, too, what I'm looking into is how much of the United Duchies did he actually run? Like, how involved was he in the governance? Because I mentioned this in my book, but he did suffer a series of strokes in the 1550s and 1560s. And at the time that his son, Johann Wilhelm, married Jacobea von Baden in 1585, Wilhelm was considered to be gravely ill at the time, but then he goes and lives another seven years. So who was the true power behind the throne of the United Duchies? Yeah. And I guess you'll be digging that information out. (laughs) Oh, I'm getting there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so, so much. This was absolutely enlightening and a very different look at Anne of Cleves or Anna of Cleves. Such an interesting queen because, as you said, she was only there for six months. So we tend to push her aside a little bit. I really appreciate you doing the first book and then coming here and talking to me about it. It's very appreciated. 
Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. And if I may, I don't know when you're going to be putting this out, but my birthday is May 3rd and I'm going to be giving away two copies of my book to celebrate my birthday. So I'll be giving away two copies of my book, hardcover copies of my book. And I believe that Amazon is almost completely out of them. So these are some of the very last few available copies of the hardback. To find them, you can either follow me on Facebook. Just look up Heather R. Darcy Historian, last name spelled D-A-R-S-I-E. You can also find out about it on my website, maidensandmanuscripts.com, or you can find me on Twitter using the handle at HR Darcy History. And I'll be putting that in the show notes, actually. Thank you so much. This was really, really enlightening. I love it. Take care and stay safe, okay? Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Heather. That was absolutely fascinating. Who knew that we could look at this so differently and understand it even better? The events surrounding Anne of Cleves is definitely more complicated and detailed than what we've learned in history class. So thank you. And of course, my book recommendation today would be Heather Darcy's book called Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister. You can catch me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at HistoryA. And I always appreciate when you rate this podcast because other people can now find me. So thank you so much. I do want to thank my husband, Jamie, and our plethora of kids, our family, our friends. Without them, I wouldn't be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.